Hello, friends. Uh, this episode of Night Rule is a little bit different. It's uh, actually uh, an interview I did with Dave Cyrus uh, and a friend of mine, the High Priest of Orther's Magic, on our other podcast. I've gone ahead and removed all of the hockey talk. Um, there's still a couple of references in there to some teams and whatnot, but mostly uh, that's just uh, to do with making fun of the Flyers a little bit, uh, because if you don't know, they're a team that's known to brawl on occasion, uh, and they have uh, the wackiest mascot in sports. But um, we talked a lot about comedy and uh, screenwriting. He, uh, we went in depth into his movie, The King of Staten Island. He's a really intelligent, insightful, and obviously hilarious guy. So um, I thought for those of you that might not have come across it before, uh, you'd really enjoy it. And uh, certainly it's worthwhile sharing it with you all. So I uh, hope you enjoy it uh, half as much as I did. For today's intro, uh, we have a few minutes of YMO's Tongpu featuring a uh, Kiko Yano on vocals, and the outro is by Sakamoto Ryuchi, and the name of this track is Plastic Bamboo. So without any further ado, please enjoy the show.
Today, we're very lucky to be joined by uh, an award-winning, a very talented, very insightful and thoughtful uh, writer, Mr. Dave Cyrus. Welcome, Dave. Hello. Is it just you, or am I talking to the whole gang? You're talking no, to the whole gang. I'm also here, Dave. Yeah. So the, the two of the, you. Yeah, the high priest was able to uh, to postpone his uh, his ablutions of the young acolytes that uh, he had to do today. You were able to reschedule that, weren't you, high priest of Oilers Magic? No, I took care of it earlier today. Uh, Tuesday is ablutions day, so it's not really the sort of thing you can reschedule without, you know, to reschedule something like the ablutions, I'd have to make major revisions to so much sacred text. I just I just took care of the ablutions earlier today. Okay, cool. Just as long as you got the memo from the lawyers and we're not going to be looking at lawsuits this time. Um I'm just glad to be on the only show that corners the market of the extremely highfalutin hockey fan. Yeah, yeah, we are the we are the only hockey podcast actually. Um, well, we're the that only hockey podcast on, on on iTunes. No, I mean all other Canadian hockey po podcasts are distributed via Moostick, so we're like a bit of a groundbreaking, very like forward leaning, forward looking, technologically advanced podcast. Dave, yeah. what do you mean highfalutin? What do you mean by that? I just mean that you guys are extremely verbose for uh, for a sports <laughs> podcast. You all talk like all of you always talk like nervous medieval serfs. <laughs> Wait, does this mean you've actually listened to our podcast, Dave? Because I was wondering why our numbers went up by forty. <laughs> of course 40%. not. Oh <laughs> no, no, come on, let's not go crazy. Yeah, let's not go crazy. Um, but it's, uh, it's great to have you just, uh, for the audience in case, uh, in case our 12 listeners don't know, Dave, uh, you can see his work or you've, you've enjoyed his work on things such as Saturday Night Live, uh, Triumph the Insult Comic Dog. Um, he's a roast battler. I know, I know you told David Feldman you don't want to, uh, be called roast battle champion. Is that still the case? Well, because the, I was champion of the New York Comedy Club, which isn't like the main, New York, there's also, there's different roasts. So it just, it, it's weird to use the word champion because it wasn't consolidated. So it's like, I, I, I don't, I don't like to use that term because it creates anger among other factions of it. Yeah. You don't want to, you don't want to get those comedians angry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, they're, they're full of anger and hate. So, but, uh, but yeah, I'm a roast battler and I wrote that movie that came out and you might've seen my Brickstone videos. That's. The most people who know me just know me from my YouTube videos from before I was like making it in comedy. Yeah, yeah. I actually, to be honest, like I know you from the David Feldman show almost like, like that was almost 90% of the stuff that I knew you for um, until I kind of investigated more. The Brickstone stuff is, is really hilarious and really ahead of its time. Um, you, you would go and do comedic interviews with the Westboro Baptist Church and was, there were some hilarious jokes in there, man. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that was, I did that a while ago and I, I only stopped when like I got SNL and I got like real writing jobs and, and also Westboro became completely irrelevant, which was nice too. Yeah, that's a, that's a delightful bonus, isn't it? I mean, if only, I think there's probably a lot of political comedians who would, who would love for that kind of trajectory or that, that kind of thing to take place. You know, if I went, if I went in a chicken suit to interview people at Fox News and then they were defunct eight months later, I would definitely be a very happy man. Um, Hi, Priest, did you, how's the collection play looking today? Is there anything in there besides buttons and, and pocket lint? Not anymore. Fuck. <laughs> That's, yeah, because you went to school for illustration, which I thought was really interesting. I, I remember you had yeah. a really hilarious joke about how 
the the salary for an illustrator has stayed the same since the 20s so you know you were basically like a millionaire back then and now you're living you know 35 grand a year <laughs> yes they made illustrators made 35 grand a year in 1920 when that was being a millionaire and that's still what they make today <laughs> and it's what it. they're going it. to make and it's what they're going to make for the rest of time it is steady um so are you i mean obviously you're not doing any um stand up right now um are are the are the are the clubs starting to open up at all there like i know it's it's doing better in new york well i'm in new york right now? In New yeah. York, I've already been offered a few outdoor shows that I haven't been doing uh, just because, like, there's still a lot of people, and I'm sure they're much safer than indoor, but I'm not into getting into that yet. I uh, haven't been judging roast battles yet, and they started to do those outside. But in the South, you know, there's a lot of clubs that have opened, like, regular with, I think, just separating tables a little bit, but without masks, and it's indoor, which I think is a Crazy. horrible idea. I mean, Deal Hughley did four shows in a row before collapsing on his fourth show in an indoor space with no one's wearing a mask. And, yeah, you know, he's, he's, he is very lucky that presumably he, no one got killed because, I mean, don't forget, you know, D.L. Hughley, number one, he's a, he's a very well-to-do person. He, I don't think he needed the money that he, to get to the stand-up show. But on top of that, like, I don't think he needed to put his fans at risk because on top of all the other factors, you know, D.L. Hughley himself is in a dangerous category. African-Americans have a higher rate of mortality with this virus for some reason. And D.L. Hughley is extremely old. He's one of the oldest and I, I Yes, I assume his fans are also. It's, it's a, it really is like irresponsible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. It's kind of shocking. Um, but I guess like with, given the kind of the tenor of the disc of the like culturally in the States, it seems, it seems like just kind of a, every state, every city, every community is its own little wild card. And it, I guess it come, breaks down to subculture as well. Um, but I guess yeah. people were just dying to go to a stand up show and the mask thing. Yeah. The mask thing is just like, uh, speaking to you from a civilization outside of America, the mask thing is, is just really fucked up and bizarre. To, to see from the well, outside. Well, it's, it, it's very specific to right now. I don't think previous generations of Republicans would have had this anti-mask mentality. I think this is very specific to the kind of culture that Donald Trump fostered of being sort of just generally anti-charity, anti-harm, uh, anti-harmony. Like, he only believes in chaos and fighting, so literally any opportunity he will take to make people fight each other. You know, they used to say that if aliens attack, you know, Ronald Reagan said if aliens ever attacked, you know, we would all forget our differences and work together. And that is no longer true. If aliens attacked, Donald Trump and all his followers would say they were hired by George Soros, that those are all secretly gay black Jews who are trying to, like they would try to use it just like they use any other opportunity to simply make people mad at anyone who has the capacity to hold him responsible for his crimes. Mm. And that's what happened that they decided, they decided to make masks a political issue for the literally only reason is because they will never throw away an opportunity to do anything that will upset other people. So just because people were saying, Hey, can you wear a mask? That was their only really reason they needed to say no. Just like, you know, 
plastic straws. Suddenly, not using a plastic straw was worse than, than death. It's the same yeah. thing. It's not about a lack of convenience. If it was a thing that if, – if wearing a mask was something that Trump said would, would anger libtards, they would all wear one. They're only doing it because their ethics and morality has become entirely rooted in making strangers hate you. Mm. So yeah, the, the, the divisiveness is pretty, is pretty off the charts. I don't know. Sometimes I wonder – and you've tickled my political bone here a little bit, Dave, so I'll just – I'll go on one quick tangent. I think I think sometimes people overestimate, even just historically, um, the amount of unity in in a country like the United States, in a country like that has it's as it's as big as it is, and there's as much there's as many kind of there's as much regionality. Like I remember reading or about during the Civil War when um, I think it was the South the South was kind of trying to curry favor with um, with the money interest in Britain, and in Britain. All the powerful people were actually much more uh, sympathetic towards the southern cause. It was just the problem was that the people on the street in general were all on the on the other side, and that's why, like for a while, there was talk of like Britain intervening. And I and it reminds me of how some Republicans are so deranged that they like even even if they admitted that uh, say whatever country interfered in our elections, they'd be like, I don't care. I still want us to win, even if it's with outside help. Like. I'm a little bit worried about the cohesiveness of like the the American political project right now, but I, I, I'm pretty sure I'm the only one, right? Well, the Republicans in their current iteration under Trump have become a little bit of a death cult, not just in the idea that they've been telling everyone you must die for the economy because we it's easier to let millions of people die than us wear a mask. But on top of that, it's also a death cult because they kind of elected Trump as a suicide attempt. Trump, it, it, for a lot of people, voting for Trump was saying, I hate this country and I want it to end already. And they wanted him to be, a be an obstacle against the just regular machinations of government. They just wanted him to exist to government and society from functioning because they don't like it. Mm. Is there just, is there, I mean, I was thinking of naming this episode, please feel free to suggest a name uh, by the end because it's one of the most stressful parts of making this podcast, but I was thinking of calling this episode Psychogeography with um, Dave Cyrus uh, sure. in honor of that Foundation Series book because I feel like, I feel like there's a lot there. Um, like the death drive, like is, for, for lack of a, of a more, of more time to actually like talk about the concept at large, like, would you say there's a death drive at, at like the core of like a lot of, uh, a lot of our society at large right now, so to speak, in terms of, well, in terms of just, you know, the can, unable to handle the chaos and the discord and just a, a desire, like you said, to kind of make it end. Well, that, that is exactly what it is. Before the pandemic, a lot of people describe the Republicans and not, not all Republicans, but the current Republicans, the ones who worship Trump, which is a cult-like non-political sort of movement. Uh, they've always sort of acted like the best thing about Donald Trump is that he obstructs the normal job of the government because these are people who truly, for the most part, I think it's simply a rejection of, of the concept of complexity. And so they see Trump as just an incredibly simple figure who can simplify the world to a level that they can understand, which is dangerously simplified. And for many of them, it was about saying, I hate the government. I hate the way this country is. I hate everyone I don't know. I just want someone to put a stop to it.
I yeah. want someone to stand there and say, no, I, I just want one simple person who I think I understand to just make every decision off the top of his head because that's what they would do if they were president. And we have a narcissism pandemic in America that makes 100% of people believe they are in the top 1% of intelligence. It's the Dunning-Kruger effect. The dumber you are, the higher your estimation of your own ability is. Mm. And that mm. is what Trump is. He's appealing to everyone who has diminished capacity, either due to narcissism or mental Ill other mental illness, or even you know things like alcoholism and chemical dependency. And he makes sense to people who are not all there. Mm. Mm. And a lot of it has to do with hatred and just anger at a country that they feel is progressing past the point that they understand. Mm. I don't know. I feel like I feel like there's. I, th I definitely agree with all that. I think there's um, there's kind of like an economic despair, almost like there's like there's multiple levels to the despair. And and being someone who's extremely desperate, I, I I'm well acquainted with this. Um, yeah, I, th I think there's a lot there's a lot there to unpack. To use a well-worn term, um, is is there is there an analog you think when it comes to say something like stand up and, and someone going to a stand up show alone to uh, to kind of make trouble? Like, are they are they walking into a situation where you know they they have some of that anger and maybe there's some some isolation, some detachment, and a frustration with the situation and it's and and some desire just to kind of make make it stop and even if they're ruining it for everyone else like well yes because internet commenting has gone real life so since trump has been elected there's been a consistent problem of hecklers who go to comedy clubs for the sole purpose of trying to take them over and just scream about trump or throw things people who will scream before a show starts those they're, they're screaming and they're doing it with a, an, an intense sense of anger because of their assumptions that anyone who can write jokes hates Trump because it's true. Um, and yeah, it's been a kind of – you get the impression that there is an extreme loneliness behind this because you have to understand the people whose sort of social outlet is commenting on things like YouTube or uh, like Yahoo – those are people who are so lonely they don't even have people on social media to talk to. Yeah. So they're using this as a, as a means of lashing out at literally anyone. And mostly it's all – there's only one phrase that's in all of their heads. You think you're better than me. Mm -hmm. You and think you're better than me? Yeah. Oh, that's sketch. And yeah. They, they, really, they really are losing their minds with jealousy and – sort of hatred of the concept of one person being smarter than another. They, they constantly use that thing, well, you can't say that someone's stupid for doing anything, or you can't say someone's a bad person because of their actions. Mm. But you can, though. <laughs> and if your yeah, actions I... are to support hate, you're a bad guy. Agreed. Yeah, I think... Um... When I was uh, when I was thinking about when I was preparing questions for today, I was I was thinking about it, and I feel like a lot of the uh, sometimes I feel like the point, or largely I feel the point has been lost in terms of this kind of antagonistic um, discussion of you know like the comics are like there's a lot of comics you'll see online or podcasts or whatever, and they'll complain about 
you know, how sensitive people are. And then obviously there's the people complaining about them, but I feel like, I feel like it's something collective that's been lost. There's, there's a, there's a tragedy that's shared on both sides and, and it is, it is this loneliness almost just on this psychological, mental, you could even say a spiritual level where, you know, we're just, people are so fragmented and there's like, you look at a Richard Pryor movie from like the seventies and you see the, what the body language of the people in the audience. And you could just tell, you know, they're there to have fun. They're, they're looking forward to hearing something outrageous. They're looking forward to having kind of the pomposity of people pricked. Um, and I really hope we can get back to that. Cause it's, I mean, maybe it's just kind of a, um, like a down the pipeline type symptom of, of just a larger cultural problem. But, um, well, I mean, the problem is a lot, a lot of it's rooted in the idea that in those, in the seventies, being a victim wasn't something to be envied. And a lot of people, particularly right wing now, uh, they're obsessed with the idea that they're victims and they construct elaborate lies to feel like victims. And when you do that, you, you don't go to a movie anymore to enjoy it. You go it to find a way to gain power by finding something that other people will feel sorry for you about. So, oh, find a way to be offended. Find a way yeah. to have something that gives you the sense of power that your life is severely lacking. Yeah, I mean, we just need to have a world where people actually feel like they have not only like maybe a sense of power, but even just the hope for like a future where they can kind of have more self-control. I just, I just think that, I don't know if it's 30 years of neoliberalism or what, but just people are so desperate right now. It's, it's uh, like comedy is kind of a canary in the coal mine, I think a little bit. Well, I think if we had had 30 years of neoliberalism, things would probably be better than they are because that would have meant not having Bush. I think that Gore... I think it's impossible to argue that the country and the world wouldn't be a better place if Gore were president had that election not been rigged. Yeah, no kidding. Um, and I, I, want, I want to talk about um, TV and, so, and, and more movie stuff in a bit, but I just, I'm curious, have you ever seen that, uh, that HBO movie they did on the recount there? I think it's just called Recount, Laura Dern. It was written by the guy who played like the super geeky dude in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's a great, great film. Um, you really get to see kind of like how fucked up that whole recount was up close, which I was probably a little too yeah. young. Yeah, Roger Stone hired a bunch of thugs to put on suits and pretend to be a riot so that they could physically stop people from voting. He should be in prison just for that. Yeah. He physically stopped people from counting votes. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. It's pretty crazy. Um, and I also feel like the Laura Dern character in that movie is, is kind of presages... Uh, Sarah Palin in that she is very determined and very charismatic and attractive, but also you can just tell there's like this, this really this deep insanity underneath the surface. Um, before we get off stand up too much though, I did want to ask you a couple more questions about stand up right now, because it is an interesting mm-hmm. time. Um, and this is something I've thought, I've thought personally uh, for a long time and maybe you'll disagree, but do you think uh, there's, there's too much of a, a kind of fetishization of stand up alone over other forms of comedy right now? Like, I don't think so because I don't see that much more stand up than the other forms. Uh, I think that there's people should explore the kind of comedy that they're good at as well as the kind that they like to watch. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think stand up is, is really that big. It's not even on TV anymore. Mm, interesting. I'm, I'm, maybe I'm just caught in like a podcast 
a like YouTube bubble where it's just like uh, you know Joe Rogan and his buddy talking about stand up, stand up, stand up, stand up. But I do think that like like I love stand up, but I'm like I do kind of lose respect for people when they're like I don't care who gets sick, I don't care how dangerous it is, I need the gratification of having a bunch of strangers laugh. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, t- like in terms of industries affected, it's it's got to be like it's hard to think of one bigger effect. And, and the other thing you have to remember much. that is that the people that I'm friends with who need to do stand up for their living, they can't do it. But wealthy people are still willing to do weekends. It really blows my mind how like the people who don't need this can still do it. Well, it's got to be a lifestyle thing, right? It's got to be, you know, if you're if you're used to a certain regular income. You know, as I think it's almost it's harder for like it's harder for someone who's making ten million dollars a year to adjust to making five than it is um, somewhat. I mean, I guess that like the swings wouldn't be as much for someone on a lower income. I don't know, but yeah, you're totally right. They definitely don't need it. It's it's pretty irresponsible. And to be honest, like as even though I'm I'm conflicted as the purveyor of a hockey podcast, I, I worry about like like should hockey be even going on if like one person's baby gets COVID. And like we don't know what the consequences for that baby's life are going to be, you know. Um, looks well, like there's, there's all the kinds problem. of long term. Babies aren't really the problem as much as you know the old people that they're gonna that they're gonna die from kissing that baby. Because I know a lot, there are a lot of elderly people right now that, that that's exactly the decision they're making too. They're like, well, I'm not gonna stop kissing my grandkids. All right, are they in little league? Are they going to school? Because you're gonna die. Like, it's a little ridiculous how much people just cannot adapt to anything. Like, that's what I'm amazed by. How many people in this world are this incapable of even changing their behavior slightly? They can't adapt to anything. It's like, were you holding on this tightly before? Like, have you just been white-knuckling your life your whole life that anything that throws a monkey wrench in it, you just fall apart? I think it's a cultural problem as as well. Like, I mean, at the risk of being repetitive, like people, I don't know. I feel like people were doing it. And I might be biased being in Canada because we've done a little bit of a better job, but I feel like the messaging, the first few months of the pandemic, there was a little bit more of a sense of, okay, coming together, you know, being rational, doing the right thing. And then it, it wasn't until the first big lockdown was kind of reaching six, seven, eight weeks that people just, for whatever reason, just decided to give, to give up on that whole rational side entirely. Well, it, yeah. it, it got nice outside, right? Oh, that's well, true. Well, let's be, let's look, let's face it. Every country was telling people, this is serious. This is bad. This is going to kill people. We have to really take this seriously. And Donald Trump, as well as just the leaders of the United States, Sweden, Brazil, and Turkmenistan, only those four countries, and even though it's almost on. To do that with Sweden because they were taking it seriously, they just decided to go for a herd immunity thing that didn't really work out. But places like Brazil, Turkmenistan, and the U.S. were the only places where the where the leader was saying, "Don't stay inside. Don't put on a mask. Go fight for your freedom. Go protest. Being, you know, liberate yourself." It was. <laughs> it showed that Donald Trump, and I've said this before the pandemic. If he, he, th- that human life means literally nothing to him. He would sacrifice a million lives for one second of adoration. And he would risk a million lives if he got a, if it was a 50 50 shot at him, at him getting something out of it. 
So that's what happened. He, to this day, has never once acted like this was a serious disease, and he has encouraged people to believe that it's a hoax, that it's fake, that, it, that it's harmless. That's the difference. Meanwhile, at, at the same time Donald Trump was tweeting, liberate yourselves to states that didn't want to have a two-week lockdown. This is when it was a two-week lockdown that he was encouraging people to not listen to it. At the same time, governors in Italy were on TV saying, I see women getting their hair done. I hope your hair looks good when you're in a coffin. Jesus Christ. Because that's, what a le- that's how a leader talks when this is happening. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's definitely a lack, of, a lack of leadership in a lot of places. I think a lot of people are looking at different leaders around the world, and a lot of them are saying, wow, I wish, I wish that person was running my country. Um, I think the New Zealand PM has been pretty good. I mean, a ton of the Southeast Asian countries have been doing really good, too. Yeah, I just pray we can get through. Like, at this point, it's really just, you know, you can't really plan more than a few weeks in, in advance, it feels like, still. Yeah, look, I mean, I'd yeah. love to make plans. But, you know, that's the funniest thing about this is that people, selfish people, you know, we're talking about narcissists. So they frame reality around whatever makes them feel good about themselves. So these are the people saying that, well, you know, I know that you're staying away from your relatives, but I really love them. Oh, well, maybe God. that's their attitude. That's the, that's exactly what they're saying. They're like, well, you know, I understand that you don't want to have a funeral, but we actually care about our families. It's such an act. It's such an act. Like those, those types who just, they're so, they're so terrified that someone will see that they're the slightest bit unhappy or imperfect and, and, and it'll somehow, the, the whole, the whole tapestry of their, of their ideology is going to come unraveled. Donald opened the churches he wants us to go to ch- he cares about us going to church and the doctors don't want you to go to church how can you not know who the good guy is oh my god why are liquor stores open but churches aren't i don't know how many people are going to die if they don't go to church zero yeah no one is going to die if they don't go to church do you have any idea how many people in this country would die of delirium tremors if they stopped having liquor stores be open? Mm, probably like, let's say 20 million. Yeah, delirium tremens is a very real thing that will kill, it would kill thousands minimum. Like, well, they're, no they're banning, one... uh, they've been banning alcohol sales in South Africa, right? And that's uh, apparently it's like some huge percentage of. The emergency room visits are, are alcohol-related, and people are just breaking Can't. into liquor stores and stealing whiskey. Yeah, because they'll die. You will die. A lot of people die from cold turkey alcohol uh, withdrawal. You have to taper off alcohol or it can kill you. Amy Winehouse died. Uh, the guy who played the chef in, uh, in True Blood. There, uh, a friend of mine, Corey, died in his 30s because he was trying to kick alcohol. Jesus. It's not uncommon. Hmm. It happens about to about a quarter million people in America every year simply without not having access to alcohol. Damn. I was not aware of that. I don't um, know if that's how many die or how many have severe DTs, but I know that it yeah. is like a it is it's more common than people think, and that's when you have access to it. Yeah. Like it's the selfishness and the lying. And the oversimplification of things is what's so dangerous. And everyone does. The people on the left do it too. 
they simplify problems sure. to make them uncomplicated for themselves. You know, a good example is, you know, Joe Biden. Uh, a lot of people didn't want Joe Biden. He wasn't my choice in the primary, but almost any anyone who's rational and honest recognizes that his administration would be significantly better than Trump's, that it's it would be a much better choice. But people who don't want to admit that will then start lying about his even platform just to uncomplicate the decision for themselves. They'll say, well, you know, I think he's going to appoint uh, anti-abortion judges to the Supreme Court. And I think he's going to leave those kids in cages. It's like, yeah, but you know that's not true. You just have no problem making things up in order to make all your decisions perfect and pure and having no contradictions. And that's part of, you know, a lack of intelligence is the inability to have conflicting ideas in your head at once. Yeah. Well, and I think I think it's the ultimate like when people use the term virtue signaling, I just think about all these these people on the right who are just like, you know, oh, because he opened up the churches, we know who the good guy is. It's like, hmm. That's uh, that's kind of a version of the same thing you accuse people on the left of all the time. I have one, maybe one more political question I want to hit, and then we'll um, we'll talk about the movie and maybe some TV and stuff if we have time. Um, just in terms of solutions that you know, because I'm 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 extremely good at, at uh, uh, pointing out problems, um, but rarely, rarely once in a, once in a while I have an idea that might help things. Like, do you think like if you if you open up a newspaper? And you read an article and it's, it gives some financial figure, let's say, you know, uh, the cost of like Medicare for all or whatever. And they say it's five bajillion, zillion, bajillion dollars. Like shouldn't, shouldn't newspapers be, shouldn't there be a policy where you have to actually put those numbers in context and say out of a total budget of X or some kind of rule because we know human beings are incapable uh, of of understanding these figures out of context and also completely uninterested in in probably going and, and getting the full context shouldn't shouldn't newspapers actually be the be responsible and, and give people the information in a way that can actually mean something well yes and you know but i mean that's the issue is more that people need to stop equating the new york times and infowars they need to start looking at which, but you know, people talk about I, I, how the number of people I've seen quote the Washington Times who don't realize that is a right wing bullshit rag that they're confusing mm. with the Washington Post yeah. is ridiculous. People don't know what the hell they're talking about. And you have the, the right wing of this country looks at PolitiFact and Snopes, which are extremely accurate at fact checking, and just say, no, they're owned by Bezos. And, and like they they have this complete fabricated lie of all fact checking is fake. It is such a sad, desperate attempt at at changing reality. And yes, newspapers have a responsibility to only use legitimate sources. The only the Congressional Budget Office has never been accused of of of, of politicizing, uh, you know, something like this. The actual costs of things. That's who people should be looking at. Okay, well, just to keep just to lighten things up a little bit and uh, switch gears, I wanted to ask really quickly: um, Can you respond to reports that you were recently heard yelling uh, "semen is not poison" in your ultra-orthodox Jewish neighborhood in, in NYC? That you know, it's weird. That sounds like me, but I don't think I said that. <laughs> Wasn't that you? Weren't you talking about the Rod Stewart hockey story? That oh, was that. Bullshit. <laughs> Yeah. Oh. Oh. Yeah. 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 Right. I did. I did yell that. I and the, the, then you literally said, "If I don't recall, I, I shouldn't yell that here." 
I was inside, but yes, the, right, the windows were open. Um, yes, uh, that was a perfect example of just how stupid people are, that certain numbers of people, a good number of people, believe that Rod Stewart had to go to the hospital to get his stomach pumped after blowing every single member of a, of a Canadian hockey team. And that really speaks to how dangerously stupid the general population is. There are so many reasons that you know that's not true. Number one, never in the history of hockey has an entire team all been like, hey, we're, we're all gay, right? We just, I know we didn't mention, but is every single one of us gay or bi? And enough of an exhibitionist that we get blown by a man in front of each other? I don't think that's ever happened. And I don't, I, like, I don't believe that every single one of them would just unanimously be like, yeah, let's all get blown by this old guy. And, you know, I don't believe that Rod Stewart would have the stain power to blow that many men in a row. And most importantly, it's not poison. Exactly. You, you, you exactly. don't get your stomach pumped when you're full. It's... <laughs> I'm just saying, if you've ever repeated <laughs> or even acknowledged the possibility that that was real, like rumor that 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 was a real story, you are a bad person, and you should feel bad about yourself. Mm. You think... know, the Richard Gere one, I get it. I get why you might believe it. It was never true. It was provably untrue. It's disgusting that so many people have believed it just because they want to believe things that are sensational. But at least that one isn't as obviously disprovable just in hearing it. Mm. I think I think Rod Stewart could probably I think he would have the staying power to do that. Let me tell you something about celebrity. <laughs> People like Rod Stewart are not doing the blowing. <laughs> Rod Stewart didn't spend years and years fighting, working hard, trying to be the best musician he can be just so that he could blow a bunch of other people. Makes a good point. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I still think he would have, if he was inclined to, I think he could do it. I think he would have the staying power to do I it. I should say, the, the High Priest of Always Magic is like a Rod Stewart super fan, so... No, I'm not. He, he believes I'm not. in, the, he believes in his, his stick-to-itiveness. No, I'm not. I'm just saying he puts on, like, he's used to, <laughs> he's used to energetic shows, right? That's right. what I'm saying. Look, I'm not saying, that, I'm not saying that Rod Stewart would have done it when he was in Faces, but not when he was a solo artist. Not during his like his American standards when he started recording American standards. No, see, by that point, yes, he was completely, uh, you know, in his own head. I can see him getting blown by a whole hockey team. You know, at least wanting to. Once again, you're never going to get a, a whole team be unanimous on anything. These people can't agree on anything. They're certainly not going to all blow the same person or be blown by him. Yeah, you might be right. Yeah, yeah. And again, we're covering some really important territory here. I think, I think, I think this is all really cogent, really, really relevant stuff here. Um, I've never actually, I never heard, I'd, I'd never heard this Rod Stewart thing before. What team was it? The Kings? It was the Flyers, wasn't it? The Flyers. In the Holy rumor, smokes. I can't remember. Yeah, Dave, I, I should warn you, know, we're we're in the remote Canadian wilderness, so we're we're not exposed to a lot of elements of of uh, the mainstream culture down there, such as like electricity and and Rod Stewart rumors and stuff. So. You know, I am, I am curious what team it was. I'm gonna look this up because Rod if it was Stewart a, if hockey. If it was the team. Flyers, I could definitely see it. The Flyers are they're, or at least they were like a rowdy bunch. So I can it see it can't be the yeah. Flyers because I, if it was the Flyers, uh, I could see their cum being poison. <laughs> 
Why is it that the Flyers are the best punchline to like almost any hockey joke that requires like a team name at the end? Well, because Philadelphia is already the absolute worst sports city in the world, just in terms of how insane their fans are, and hockey players and and hockey fans are the sickest of all the sports fans. So Philadelphia True. hockey is yeah. just the most dangerous situation you could possibly be in. I actually brought that up once at Westboro. They were attacking Philadelphia, and I was like, have you been to fucking Philadelphia? If you go to a Flyers game, they will fucking kill you. They threw, they threw batteries at Santa Claus in Philadelphia. Batteries at Santa Claus. That's, That's not very you nice. Know, you know what's Eagles, so funny? I've only heard the Rod Stewart story about a hockey team. That's how it was always described to me and, and when I heard it. But apparently back in the old days, it was a ship full of sailors. Oh, yeah. That makes, that makes sense, though, because there, at the time, there was uh, much more of a there – there, back then, for whatever reason, there was much more of a stigma about sailors being gay, which kind of faded yeah, yeah. away. Mm, 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 why, did totally. that fade, why did that fade away, do you think? Don't ask, don't tell. I don't know. I don't know. Because it was really like a huge sort of thing, you know, for the longest time. It was. And we it, it's no longer like, I don't, I never hear people talk about, you know, you're gay if you're in the Navy. No, I mean either. But I think that would be, I think it still works as a pretty solid punchline, you know, because sailors are, I don't know, they're, everyone can picture a sailor, right? Well, so it's, it's just kind like, of like I a universal like- thing. Right, but it's at the same time. I feel like we don't call Greek people gay anymore either. Like I think we've oh, grown yeah, up a little used bit to from be that. A thing too. Oh yeah, that was a huge thing calling yeah, Greek right. men gay. It used to be this weird stereotype that was literally just based on the idea that I like in the 1980s, people were so ignorant they thought that ancient Greeks were the first gay people, and that mm. being gay was like an idea that had to be invented. <laughs> yeah, that always cracks me up. That always cracks me up. People that they think it's like, it's like getting into watercolors or something. You're like, oh, I didn't know. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, it, that's exactly it. That people uh, that whenever you hear someone describe homosexuality as a choice, you're all what you're really hearing is someone explaining that they thought everyone else was bi. Also, <laughs> was the Greek thing like? Was that a thing kind of pre-Aristotle Onassis or was that right around the same, the same time? Because I think like I heard that when I was a kid, I, I would run into jokes like that. And I always assumed it had something to do with like kind of the opulence of those fabulous Greeks at, at the time. That was the connection I made. Well, no, I mean, the Greeks were I think it's it goes, it's older than that because Greeks, yeah, probably in ancient Greece was the being well, open being gay yeah. was normal it was that you know uh you know spartans and uh, athenians had a rivalry if you remember the movie 300 some people thought it was homophobic when the spartans called the athenians boy lovers because oh. they said oh well why would greeks be using homophobic slurs that's actually not what that meant spartans had sex with other men athenians had sex with boys and yeah. the Spartans were making fun of the fact that they have sex with young boys as opposed to Spartans who it would be regular, you know, adult men, which, of course, 
is much is, is you know is fine and what the Athenians doing with, with their you know catamites and stuff was was of course right. wrong and yeah and the Spartans and, were right to look down on them yeah because the Spartans yeah they would have wives but they wouldn't they wouldn't they wouldn't stay at home with the wives they would all stay in the barracks and do like butt stuff and then the right. Athenians they would stay like men yeah men men but then Plato his his great treatise on love is all based on an old an old dude hooking up with a young boy and it's it's it, it makes me laugh every time people talk about uh, use the term platonic love it's like uh, if you read plato it's a little different right and uh, yeah exactly that at the time they didn't understand that it was sort of something you're born with either they you know so it it, it was a very and there have been different cultural effects of homosexuality and how it how it how it manifests but yeah you could be it, the the stigma comes from the fact that they were openly gay, and then years later there was the Roman Empire, which of course stigmatized homosexuality and would of course use it as a propaganda wing, you know, say that oh those, those guys are gay, they're going to hell. Right. Um, one, you know, I mean, one, yeah. yeah. And no, no, well, and it seems like only recently did that stop being a stereotype. And it, then it became like the Flyers, the Philadelphia Flyers. Well, if you want to call them gay, be my guest. Yeah, be careful. Be careful. We're going to get punched in the face by Gritty. The Flyers do have the best mascot in the history of sports, though. Who's um, their mascot? Is that the green he's, thing? No, he's called, he's called Gritty, and he has kind of like googly eyes. Oh, they're, oh, they're the ones with Gritty? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that yeah. thing is weird. <laughs> it's pretty good, uh, though. Pretty good. Yeah. Really um, speaks to the amount of alcoholism among... The Flyers fans. No doubt, no doubt. Um, well, actually, one. You, go you ahead. Go ahead. Think, you don't want to overthink your mascot, right? Like I think um, a high level of alcohol, alcoholism can really aid the um, imagineering of a mascot. You know. Oh, like, I you don't get want that. To... And clearly, that's what happened. But I'm just yeah. warning you: if you're good, if, you know, if you want to do this, you feel my guess. But if you go to Philadelphia and talk like this, you're going to get punched in the face by a grizzled five-year-old. Yeah, one one other interesting tidbit the secret professor has from from ancient Greek history was I I recall the the Persian king who invented um, the famous Battle of Marathon. They they would make fun of the Athenians for what for being what they called cowards for like selling stuff in the marketplace. Like they thought capitalism <laughs> itself was just like super cowardly, which I thought was like, an interesting. Uh, that's weird. Just the idea yeah. of mercantilism. Was what, as in the idea of what you can't make your own milk? Well, no, just like going, like I think the way it was Xerxes, whoever termed it, was just like you're a bunch of cowards because you just go to the marketplace and trick each other. Uh, huh. Which interesting. Yeah, the Athenians were people. very weird. The, the Athenians were, I mean, the Spartans were were in many ways not the brightest people. Uh, that that's why they died out. I mean, they were, they just they, they their society when you really looked at it was not functional. Well, they depended on all those punishment. slaves, right? They they didn't. Yeah, do it was all slaves. They have all yeah. this respect. Yeah, they had so much respect for their own citizenry, but were terrible to their slaves. It was completely hypocritical, and they they ended up losing their population because they would just eyeball babies and say, "He looks weak, throw him away." When it's like that's not how you judge if a kid's going to be healthy or not. Yeah. Indeed, indeed. Um, I did want to transition to the movie, if you don't mind, uh, Mr. Cyrus. Um, yes. Because I did watch it. I did enjoy it. I'm not just saying that. If I hated it, Thank I would have told you. Um, 
And I know I heard you on David Feldman's show last night say that you were you finally got some numbers out of like the the two point five countries where it was actually allowed to open. But do they actually give you any numbers in terms of the streaming and all that? Like that's got to be a mind. No, if you don't I haven't seen any. They haven't shown us any of those numbers. That I haven't personally seen any of those numbers because it's very different. There's a lot of. It's hard to explain, but because this is like a brand new idea of putting it straight to video because of the pandemic and there's you know there's obviously there's there's issues between amc and the studios because of that you know i don't think that they want to put out the numbers directly all i can all i know is that uh it it was number one for the three weeks that i was checking it uh on streaming so that was a very good sign and that apparently awesome. we did fine and that it's really funny because i saw on imdb it lists the box office as two hundred and forty thousand dollars which of course is a very low number for a movie like that. And I was like, oh my God, I thought we didn't have the numbers. And then I looked it up and found out, oh my God, that's just Norway and the Netherlands in theaters, not even including those countries who might've bought it at, at home. So it's because those countries actually gave a shit about the pandemic and shut down properly. And now they have movie theaters again because everything's fine. Norway is doing amazing. And that's why they can have people move. We can put people in movie theaters safely there, apparently. So, yeah, that it apparently did very well in theaters there. That's good. Here, that's good. Here, right. too. Movie theaters are open here, too. Yeah, but they shouldn't be. Well, that's I why think I, in Edmonton. Oh, sorry. Can, oh, sorry. Can, I forgot you're in Canada. Right. <laughs> yeah, you guys are fine. You yeah. guys are fine. You actually bothered to give a shit about killing people. Come to us, Dave. The water's warm here in Canada. Martin Shorts, Martin Shorts just looking at me across the street, giving me a wink. He's giving me the thumbs up. You're approved for hey, immigration man. status. No, Canada's very nice. It's we've we've been, you know, we've been talking about Canada. You know, American liberals use Canada as our example forever. You know, because literally because we have Republicans saying you're going to turn us into a communist country, and it's like <laughs> you're being such a hypocrite for saying that if America did this, we'd be communist, but you literally never call Canada a communist country. And we're only talking about using the same healthcare system as them. It's unbelievably childish and hypocritical. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for sure. For sure. We love, we, we love as, as Canadians, we always love to hear, we, we just hear, we love to hear Americans say the, the, the word Canada, because we've got such an inferiority complex, so much of our identity is bound up in, in contrasting and comparing ourselves. Um, but just to get back to the movie, I kind of wanted to ask you about um, several things since, I'm, since we're lucky enough to have you on mic here. Um, I was really taken aback by the, by the first scene. Um, you know, I think the first shot is, is you see uh, Scott's eyes in the rear view, um, and then, then you have that whole scene in the car, and and it really blew me away. Like when I, when that scene, after after sitting through the first few minutes of the movie, I was like, wow, that is, in terms of a scene to open a movie where this it gives you really like it really establishes the stakes. I felt really effectively right away. Was that was that was that the opening scene, like uh, for for a long time? Was that always was no. that always kind of how you wanted to open? No, it? that was that was a very last minute decision to put that really that scene wow. that scene with that scene was shot with the intention of it being his reaction to to basically his life falling apart that oh. that scene was originally shot as a reaction to when he's told that he has to move out right oh wow that's and super interesting because i realized i, I was convinced that, 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 that it must have been in the description i was like wow this is the way oh, to yeah. movie. 
we really we really realized later, and I believe that might have actually been uh, Leslie Mann who had the idea to put it at the very beginning because it makes more sense because it wasn't supposed to be about oh his life is falling apart. It's it, it you're, we wanted we needed to figure out an easier, faster way of explaining this is what he's like all the time. Right. This is not about someone who a series of circumstances made him suicidal. This is right. someone who has it firmly within himself. And yeah. it's not about outside stimuli. Yeah. No, I thought it, I thought it was really well done. Um, even just the subtle things of kind of, you know, seeing the way his eyes kind of dart in the rear view. And, and I, to be honest, I've been, I've been binging tons of Sopranos the last few months in, in, uh, lockdown, so I was. It reminded me a lot, or kind of rhymed in my mind with the the opening credits of The Sopranos, and you can kind of see the, you, the first time you see Tony's eyes in the rear view, and it just occurred to me how how cinematic a rear view mirror in a car is. There's there's like a handful of things where when I'm watching a movie, I'm just like, wow, this this element is so cinematic, and I thought I thought it worked really really well. Um, and I was, yeah. I was also curious, kind of about some of the other early elements early on in the film, like, um, and I know. Um, and again, I'm obsessed with Sopranos. It's on my mind because they had the costume designer on uh, the Talking Sopranos podcast. I don't know if you know of that. It's Michael Imperioli and Steve Sherpa do it. Um, yeah, it's yeah, actually yeah. it's a really really good podcast. I think you can you know if, if any of our fans haven't listened to it or any of our four fans, just you should check it out because it's a good podcast for hearing you know like a lot of insightful comments, a lot of interesting kind of behind the scenes stories, um, a lot of intelligent uh, thoughts, and uh, and you know Steve Sherpa is also on it too. Which is nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, uh, <laughs> Just fucking with him, yeah. Steve Sharippa, he's uh, fat. <laughs> well, he, he's 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 letting it all hang out. He kind of just he he's kind of the the yin to to Michael's yang. Um, but you know, the costume designer for The Sopranos is talking about how how much she loved working on it and and how her job is all about expressing character through the clothes and and. That might have been on my mind when I was watching the movie because I felt like there were a few visual elements I noticed early on that that I felt kind of definitely um, expressed character pretty well. I think uh, there's an early scene. It might be the first scene where you see Scott's character with his mom, uh, the mom played by Marissa Tomei, and he's like walking into the room, and it's uh, you see her in the kitchen. He, he he crosses into the frame and he's kind of out of focus a little bit. And his shirt, you can just see that what the top of his shirt says, and it says Boys Club, I think, or maybe it's the bottom. Um, mm -hmm. And then there was another, I think also maybe earlier on in that scene, the first time you meet Mercer Tomei's character, she's got one of those, um, one of those crystals, crystal lamps by her bed. And I was just like, okay, yeah. And it immediately made me think like, okay, this character, there's something going on here. And I like wondered like, is that, is that all just the production designer um, and like the director and the costumer or are all the writers kind of getting in there and have it? Do, do, oh no, we, we throw really stuff in there. Weren't, no, the writers, uh, like, you know, I mean, it was written by me, Pete, and Judd, but we also had uh, Judah Miller and Ricky Velez uh, co-producing with us. So they contribute, you know, ideas and writing, you know, as well. So, but we, no, that was never, like, that meticulous a decision. We, you know, the thing about Judd and uh, this movie was that, you know, he's at that point in his career where, you know, he can just have whatever he wants. You know, he, sure. he, you know, he can call those shots. So. That was one of the great things about, you know, this is the first movie I've ever worked on, and everyone on it was the highest level professional. So, you know, our designers and our art directors and just everyone, we had these real pros who've been doing this forever, know exactly what they're doing, and you could just, that was what was great about it. You didn't have to micromanage them. They were really 
really working this and getting into it and making it, making sure we had all these little details. And that's, you know, the, those little things build up, you know, in a movie to really make it feel real and feel full. And, and that's, a, you know, I think that, you know, that that's why, you know, I think one of the best things about the movie was I think it's really, I think it became Judd's most realistic movie mm. or at least mo most like down to earth. I definitely and would I agree. I think some people yeah. like that. Well, and I, I, don't, I think part it didn't of that seemed like is, a Judd Apatow movie. Uh, in, in, in yeah, some ways. no, Judd really, Judd really saw this uh, as a, you know he wanted to grow and he wanted to you know this Judd takes this very very seriously. He really goes into this with just an attitude of I want this. He he cares about the the art of of narrative in a way that you know it's very hard to wrap your head around. And he really cares about being like holistic and just and that. It, and that a story needs to be in every moment needs to be in your head at once, you know, like a, you know, it's like a magic trick to be able mm -hmm. to hold all these details at once so that everything feels cohesive. And uh, yeah, we just had really good people. We had really great wardrobe. We had great everything. And, yeah. uh, you know, like all these details that I didn't even notice, but that these people left to their own devices know how to make every little thing better. I think it comes through. I mean, I think, yeah, even if even if you're not consciously noticing visual elements, a lot of the times I feel like you're uh, there's a, a great YouTuber that used to say, you know, you didn't notice it, but your brain did. Um, and I think uh, like in terms of the visual style, the, the other thing that really stood out to me was the ending. I, I really I really enjoyed the last um, like <clears throat> I, I was kind of keeping an eye out for little little visual elements. And I honestly didn't really see that many in the middle of the film. It was more at the beginning of the end, which which makes a lot of sense and is pretty intuitive, I think. Um, but the, but like the last shot of him, uh, you know, he's kind of walking back towards the street and there's some ice cream, uh, vendors, uh, and he's in New York, but he's also like looking up at, uh, at the skyline and the sun shining. And I, I really, I really thought the ending, uh, had a, had a kind of visual poignancy to it as well that I really yeah, enjoyed. Yeah. And that was not, that was not the original ending. We oh, originally were going to have more, there was originally going to be more about, what Pete is doing. There were scenes that we shot that show him uh, still working at full time, but also putting himself through uh, art school. That oh, he's that 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 he's going to. School. And there was another ending where he was assisting at the kindergarten that he was he was walking right. uh, built uh, a raised daughter to. Uh, the one thing we, the one thing we, we, we never considered was the idea that he would become a fireman, but we did mm. consider other jobs that he would have because, but we, because it was like, this is, we're, we're tackling a very serious, very real mental illness problem here. The worst thing we could do is act like it can be solved because it can't. See, so we just yeah. wanted to show progress. That's it. That's really interesting because I wondered when I was thinking about the ending, I was just like, well, and in my mind, you know, I, I assumed the opening and the, and the ending were, were, uh, you know, established early on. It's really, really interesting to find out that, that they, that they came about later. But, you know, in my mind, I was thinking, well, it has this really intense ending where the stakes are really set up as really high. And I wondered if you guys had thought about, well, do we need, do we want to show more of him kind of recovering? Or I, I don't know, maybe you get like a Robin Williams type actor to come in and hug him and say, it's not your fault or whatever. Um, and I, but, but exactly. I did, and I, I think a lot of people, a lot of people did not like that. And that's mm. exactly the kind of thing I think we wanted to avoid. Sorry, go on. Mm. That's interesting stuff. Um, 
A couple of the things I definitely want to hit on the movie. And again, I think we're at uh, we're at a little over an hour now, Dave. So the way this works is we can bill your insurance company directly. You're in America, so that's international rates. Um, but High Priest, since he's in America and we're Canadians and we're nice, I think we should wave the fee today. What do you think? We waved it for Bob. Bob was great. We should wave it for Dave, too. Bob and Dave? Bob and yeah. David. I welcome you to try to collect. <laughs> okay. Um, did you want to jump in anything with High Priest, or should I just keep going here? Keep going. Okay, okay. I owe. Um, yeah, like you were saying, like, like we were talking about a little bit before, it's definitely um, a much more of a indie feel to it. it. It does like really the only thing that that where you can kind of tell maybe it's a Judd Apatow movie or some of the scenes with the friends in the basement and the joking around, um, which is kind of in his, it, it, I would say more, a little more in his milieu, even though it's still, it's the whole thing really just does feel like it's in a very indie style. Um, and there was, uh, I wanted to ask you about improvisation. So um, I heard that, um, and I want to ask you about Bill Burr as well a lot more, but I heard that Bill Burr's uh, Bolivian nickel joke was, was improved. Um, yeah. I'm pretty sure I, he said that off the spot. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and it's hilarious. Um, and we're, we're built big, 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 big Bill Burr fans. Although I do think he he needs to resign as attorney general because he's the worst attorney general we've ever had in history. Um, but uh, I was thinking about really improv, awesome. and, and this actually this came up on the Talking Sopranos one as well, our podcast as well, where Michael Imperione was talking about how much um, Scorsese lets actors improvise, and and I was wondering, like I think I think a lot of times, especially in a in a more comedic film, although this is, I wouldn't I wouldn't I don't think King of Staten Island really fits into a, a, a neat category that way, but. You know, people will look and say, oh, you know, so-and-so improv that line or that joke was just just came up on the spot. But um, I think maybe the, the the greatest benefit probably to having a really a really good kind of improv uh, atmosphere on set is, is probably just that it lets the actors really kind of like live in live in the role and, and get a feel for it and feel comfortable and, and safe trying stuff and no one's going to yell at them or whatever. And, and you probably see the benefits of that kind of improvisation and that kind of atmosphere throughout their performance is 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 that the case you think do you think there's a greater benefit to the performance overall that comes from that well i mean it's really more about just allowing people to put to make it seem comfortable so that you never feel forced you never feel sweaty and that way you can have much more realistic performances that don't take you out of it because nothing's ever you know overly written and you know there's a ton of jokes that broke my heart that couldn't be in the movie for you know because of various factors because i write very meticulously written jokes and that didn't always lend itself to the tone of the movie so you know i think that we are also at a place now where people are finally appreciating more natural dialogue you know like shows like rick and morty you know really explore that in a way that's never really happened uh, you know, we we have a much more sort of natural way of speaking. You know, we're not doing this kind of overly rehearsed thing anymore in a lot of movies. And I think that helps. And I think it, it helps just sort of grow. And in terms of filmmaking, just having people talk like they really talk. And it's not like they're improvising the, the substance of what they're saying. They're just improvising how they say it. So it's just about having enough rehearsal and having enough work with the actors so that they really know inside out who this person is, what ideas have to come across, what kinds of things have to be shared. And then you don't need to know your lines. You can just kind of be in that space and have it come out real. Mm, without thinking about it. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I think the dialogue, I, I, I wanted to mention, I think the dialogue sounds really good. Like it's it's very, 
natural sounding, um, like much more natural sounding for the most part than than most films. I mean, it, it's a little different scene to scene. I think you know a, an intimate scene with two two lovers in bed is gonna have is you're gonna probably see a lot more of that and and where there's like more jokes and stuff like that, it'll be a little less. But the the dialogue really was interesting to me because it the whole thing felt like an indie film with with just like a little bit of a bigger budget than you would normally see. Yeah, and I mean, our budget was basically in the in the fact that Judd likes to get the best of everything. You know, we we had to rent out uh, a minor league baseball park just to have like you know because we wanted to have that nice scene yeah. in the park. That was the scene. Use, that was the scene I was thinking of in my mind. Yeah, we we didn't even use the stuff that that we filmed on the field because it was stuff we filmed on the field with uh, with uh, I think Dan Natterman actually. Uh, and so there was stuff that we didn't get to use, but then at the same time, it, a lot of it was just about like, you get the right actor who's really, really good at this and they can be present without dialogue and have it work. And you got that especially because I think the best actors in the movie overall, if I had to be fair, the absolute best acting was from, uh, Belle Powley and Marissa Tomei. I think that while Pete and Bill were very good, were really good. Were, I mean, Bill was amazing. I was extremely impressed with both of them. Neither of them, though, have the have shown at this to this point the versatility and the the real professional sort of ability to play multiple very uh. different roles that I think Bill and Marissa have. And that's why you believed both of their love stories. I think completely. Mm. You really believed that they loved these people. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I didn't even know I had to look her up just now. I didn't know Belle was was from from Britain. So yeah, <laughs> I'm, pretty, exactly. I'm pretty fucking impressed, to be honest. How, I, assume, yeah, I that... assume she was just like a stand-up or something from New York or something. No, she is a very respected British wow. actress who came into that audition speaking in that accent after having seen all these different That's very crazy. very known, very famous actresses. None of them were able to just walk into the audition doing that accent perfectly they were that's, all that's impressive no one yeah. and these are americans who couldn't get that accent even close to how good she did and making every word she said hysterical with the accent there's one line that i wish we didn't have to cut where she's on the on the blind date with a guy and he yeah. says uh he says i love superhero movies and she i laughed so goddamn hard when she said this when she improvised this where she goes, oh, I love superhero movies, too. I just watched one. It's called The Mask of Zaro. <laughs> like, that was so fucking funny. I think I saw that movie when I was, like, 10. Wow. Um, no, she's great. Wow, I'm, I'm totally blown away to find out that I, I, I just assumed she was someone from, like, that area. Because, yeah, she's spot on. There's no, there's oh, no doubt no. about that. Carly was. Um, the, the other friend was. Carly. She's from Long Island. Yeah, and like a lot of the people, like I, I, I think I heard you mention this on a previous podcast, but like a lot of the cast among the friend group, those are those are all like stand-ups that are that are well known and successful in New York, right? That maybe like well, a national Ricky, audience hasn't seen. Oscar Ricky, the one, who, Ricky, the character, uh, that's Ricky Velez. He was our co-producer and a very known stand-up. He'll be having, I believe, an HBO special soon. Uh, oh, wow. The other ones were Lou Wilson, who was a, a very respected improviser, and Moises Arias who, of course, was a child actor on Hannah Montana. Okay, okay. Yeah. Didn't watch a lot of Hannah Montana. I'm aware of its cultural import, though. Yeah. Cool. Mm -hmm. um, 
well since since we're talking quiet. about the the cast i do i do want to get a steve buscemi question in um because he's steve buscemi and i, I think i think he's universally beloved like <clears throat> given given like i'm really just curious and this is kind of a fanboy question but like steve buscemi to me seems like just like i imagine him to be a pure artist who's you know like a great guy fun to be around charismatic but like focused on the work and maybe even the type of elder statesman type actor that would kind of help elevate everyone else just by by taking the work so seriously am, am, am i right or is he just a, like a total goofball well no he certainly wasn't a goofball but i would honestly say having been with him on set and i i did act in one scene with him that didn't make it to the movie um i would say that to me steve's more unconscious like it just seems like the second we're there, the second it's time to roll, he's just there. He's in the moment. Ah, he's just so he's completely. Just a mensch. He's just completely in that moment. He's just completely present. I never saw him look like he was concentrating on anything. Hmm. Uh, I think I never I never got the impression that he needed to betray to show that i'm sure he was and i mean he certainly takes the part seriously and he you know he's obviously taken it very seriously in this role and they seem to to like the role but uh i mean the second you know you say cut you know he's just a regular guy and he's you know he's just hanging out he's there he's you know he's uh he's just a just a fun guy to have around just a just a very very normal you know there was nothing hollywood about the guy uh it was really fun hanging out with him uh, even after you know filming, when we had like a party, uh, just you know, we had like a small cast party where we were able to, you know, we couldn't have like a big uh, production party, which I really hated. It, it sucked, but just there were issues uh, that prevent us from being able to logistically do one. But just hanging out, watching you know movies with uh, with, with Steve in a basement is really really cool. Oh, I bet, I bet. Yeah, that's interesting that you say that because now I'm imagining maybe he's more. Like, I think Edie Falco is a lot like that. Um, just my impression based on interviews. Like, you hear her interviewed about The Sopranos, and she just, like, literally doesn't remember anything about it. But when you see her on screen, it's like exactly what you're talking about. It's like she's in the moment. She's present. Um, oh, that's really interesting stuff. Um, I wanted to also propose, like, I know, I know this is a film about a young man, uh, you know, seeking... Um, you know, he's on, he's on a journey of self-discovery and all that. But I wondered, like, is when when I look at Bill Burr's mustache, is is this is this movie not also a story of a mustache? I mean, the and, mustache and, and is journey? pretty extreme. Well, the did day he, he did showed he show up, up, up the screen with... test, yeah, he showed oh, up for the screen oh test. We were growing a beard, and the day we had the screen test, he grew the mustache. My first thought was that might be too bushy, and he was like, "Ah, no, 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 no. I spent a long time on this. We're keeping it this big. Like, we're going full walrus." <laughs> Because <laughs> I was like, should we make it's it more crazy. like a hipsterish? I was like, should we make it more hipsterish, like a little bit, you know, tighter? And he was like, ah, oh, no, 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 I'm gonna look badass. Um, it's really like it's he, quite he put a lot of time in it, and he takes it like the, there's a guy who really takes the job of acting seriously. Mm. You know, not a lot of stand-ups okay. would would have tackled this as you know as seriously as he did. So it was really great that he did. Um, but uh, yeah, that mustache was insane. I wrote, I had to write so many jokes about the mustache you know that didn't even find their way in you know just he looks like a someone you know scribbled a mustache on a hard-boiled egg he looks like a bounce he looks like a bartender on sesame street he looks like an old-timey boxer got sick 
<laughs> it's crazy. It's like, it might actually be the craziest single mustache I've ever seen. I mean, like my, my journey with the mustache, and, and I'll just say quickly, yeah, Bill Burr is so good in this and you can, I can, you can totally tell, I'm, I'm sure he was taking it really seriously. And like, that's, that's not an easy role to really pull off um, for anybody. Um, Cause I think it's kind of, it's the kind of thing that makes, it's the kind of character that will make an audience inherently a little bit uncomfortable um, just by nature of the situation, you know, um, the guy dating your, your, the main character's mom or whatever. But like my journey with the mustache was more like, okay, I first see it, I'm just in shock. I'm just in shock. Uh, I'm, I'm horrified, I'm scared, I'm, I'm intrigued. My interest is certainly peaked, but like, I think it was the scene, it was one of the scenes in the fire hall about three quarters of the way to the movie where I was just like, oh, okay, he's a fireman. It's okay for him to have this mustache. I'm cool with the mustache now. Um, and it, it I mean, really he certainly, certainly made you stop. I mean, it definitely made you stop seeing Bill Burr. That was the great thing about it. You, you did not think of this as Bill Burr anymore. This is a whole new person that, you know, I think on some level, you're just like, I feel like, uh, like Pete's mom, could get a guy with a with, with with more hair, but you know what? That's not what was important. He was a badass, and he was, uh, you know, he, and there's actually a line I don't think makes it into the movie where they're making fun of his mustache. He goes, "Yeah, but when I put on the jacket and the helmet, I look badass." I'm like, "Yeah, it's actually true." It's true. And it's he, true. He, looks, he totally does. He looks so ridiculous with that mustache, but then when you see him in the fireman outfit, you're like, "Oh my god!" It's just you. He is the he's the guy. That's him. That's the fireman. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm gonna have to watch it again. He, he's he's really good. The whole cast is really strong. Um, I would say. Um, I'll maybe hit a couple more questions on the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, and then maybe we can do some fun stuff if you still have time. It's been great having yeah. you on. Um, so, okay, maybe three more on the movie. So, did you did you pick the? There's a very iconic Game of Thrones scene uh, at one point in the film that the characters are watching. Um, I don't want to give it away, but a certain someone might get bitch slapped. Um, and I was um, curious. I was curious if there was like multiple Game of Thrones scenes being considered for that. Yeah, that was one of the things I did. Was I I I, I compiled several Game of Thrones scenes based on the mo based on that exact scene, and I think Judd picked of the ones that I liked most which one we would use because it also depended on we ha it had to, we then had to figure out which actors we had the rights to. Because uh, obviously we have to own the so at first I was only I was only pitching White Walker scenes because then we wouldn't have to buy anyone's rights but then we're like oh no let's make it more of a calm scene and then we found out which actors we had access to and then I was able to pick a scene based on that okay that that I liked and that's yeah. a that that, that is a fun one. scene I think I actually wanted to do the other scene the later time that he slaps him but this one ended up working better because mm -hmm. I I'm a fan of the other slap where he goes. And I've just struck a king. Did my hand fall from my wrist? Mm, yeah, that's a good one. Ah, oh, man, I miss I miss those those carefree days of yore when you were like watching Game of Thrones season one or two, and you just didn't have a worry in the world, and you weren't in the awkward finals final years, which were were still strong, but just so rushed, you know. No, I mean it was only the last season that kind of fell apart because yeah, that's it true. just seemed like they had to get all this stuff done with no money or time left. And we have no idea which things were from the future books and which things were made up on their own. That's the weird part. We don't really know which, what isn't in the books. Because, of course, as you know, George Martin will never write the books. That's true. Why would he? Why would he? He, he, he will never finish this series. Yeah. 
It's true. Um, <clears throat> one fact, more. If he, if he couldn't finish this goddamn Winds of Winter while he's in a pandemic, it's never going to happen. <laughs> He's literally locked <laughs> locked in his house and he still uh, can't get his uh, shit together and finish this goddamn 1000-page book. It's never He recently said he thinks maybe he'll finish it in 2021, which he might as well be saying if you're waiting for this book, walk into a fire. <laughs> I think some people would um, rather than rather than continue to wait, um, I wanted to ask uh, about the emergency room scene. Mm -hmm. So there's a scene in the movie where there's a there's a guy who's you know that's not the guy from Fuck That's Delicious, is it? Of course, I can't tell. Oh, it Watch is that Bronson. guy. Okay, okay, fucking a, cool. Yeah, he's great. Um, that and that that was like both a really obviously like a really funny scene or a couple of scenes, but the I, I feel like. You know, the when when they were like, oh, you know, I, oh, I'm actually like I'm a fireman, so can we get this guy with a stab wound in his belly looked at? Like, I just feel like I've seen so many scenes in American films in the last 10, 20 years of of fucked up shit kind of happening in an emergency room, and I just wanted to ask you if you think there's a day where we could look forward to, you know, maybe the healthcare being a little bit better there, and we could just stop seeing that scene in in, in like every second film. I but mean, you're is almost that obligated to at this point. Is that really not a problem in any like Canadian hospital that might there might just be not enough people in the moment, like that no one ever waits? Because I mean, I, I know it, is that really not an issue? Like, because I didn't, I don't know of that as being like a specific American problem. That if if there's like there might be more people ahead of you in an emergency room. I, I honestly don't know. Because I know I know the payment is the problem, but I've never heard that lines were worse for us than most. If anything, I thought our lines were better because so many people are just not going to the hospital because they don't have insurance. By the way, That's there was possible. a scene that I, I hate that we had to cut from that where uh, you see Action Bronson covered in tape and bleeding through his gauze with like wires still coming out of him as he's walking to the exit being like, you know what, I think I'm good. I'm just gonna catch a lift. You know, everybody be careful. There's a terrible flu going around. As a as a nurse runs after him, be like, "Sir, sir, sir you have to, <laughs> sir, you are not clear to. Someone get him back on the gurney." I really he nailed that part. That we, he was so funny. I hate that we can use that scene. I wanted that scene so bad. Oh. yeah, that's got to be brutal to like uh, leave stuff on the cutting room floor. Um, uh, no. I know you said you're probably not super focused or super interested in writing anything like straight drama in the future, but I mean, when I think of this film, King of Staten Island. And I think of, uh, you know, The Sopranos. I, I feel like The Sopranos is, is obviously an amazing drama, but also one of the best comedies of all time. And I feel like a lot of the best things that I like the most have, have kind of a, they, they skirt the line between the two. Well, um, to be honest, I right now am considering a script idea that would be tonally closer to The Sopranos than anything else I can think of. Oh, interesting. I'd love I shouldn't to, uh, I'd love say to see that. Much. No, I, no, don't, I don't can't say, anything. say much, but I can say that as you just described The Sopranos as a comedy is exactly how this would be a comedy. Interesting. Well, I mean, the yeah, The Sopranos the, as a comedy, it's it's a high, like it's a very intelligent, very intelligent level of humor. And I feel like the editing is also used with tremendous comedic effect in, in a very subtle way. 
that you maybe don't even notice the first few times you see it. Um, yeah, I'm trying to crack that code of making the crime thriller comedy because mm. I actually know the story of uh, a very famous story about a, a movie that was in process that never got made just because they never quite cracked the tone of it, of the idea of like, it was a horror movie comedy uh, mm. that would have been that sounded very funny, but for some reason it never made it all the way. But just the idea of like, Take any horror movie and then put a comedic actor in place of one of the victims. Right. You know mm. what I mean? And, and have yeah. them react. Have them react honestly to how one might react to the situation. You know, like the idea that, like, you're in that thing where, like, there's three college students. They're being chased with someone with a chainsaw, and they're, they're, they're trying to plan out how to survive. But just one of them just can't stop crying. Mm. Like you know, the idea that you would that you would just have someone be like, "How how can you be so calm right now?" <laughs> right. Like, I, I thought, anyway, I've, I've said too much. No, 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 don't. It's okay. Say 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 more. Get yourself in more trouble. It's okay. We. Well, I feel we like embrace... on your show, it's basically like being anonymous. It's basically like having doctor-patient confidentiality. It is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 totally anonymous, really. Um, and it's not a faux anonymity like Ted Denson when he bought that wing of. Uh, that place for the NRDC. Um, let me see here. Oh God, I've been dreading this. I've been dreading this. Let's talk about TV just for another two minutes, so I can, so I don't have to dread what I what I have to do after that. Um, I mentioned you mentioned that you're working on, or you you know some of the guys that worked on Nathan for you, which is uh, a, a, one of Canada's and Vancouver's proudest sons, Nathan Fielder, and one of my all time favorite shows. I'm friends with the showrunner uh, Michael. That's Coleman. so cool. That's so cool. I love I love that style of comedy, and I actually feel like. Um, it's got a similarity to Triumph in that it's a, you get a lot of uh, comedic gold just from 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 examining people's behavior and people's reaction to things, um, and 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 it's it's set up and it's executed in a much more intelligent way than just you know look at these idiots. It's more just like wow, like look at all these interesting reactions and the nuances of their reactions and stuff. Um, have you seen his his CBC like his Back when he was in no. the minor leagues, he did some great, um, like remotes um, on CBC. It's called uh, Nathan on Your Side, I think it's called. God damn it, it's fucking hilarious. Um, no, he's great. Yeah. Yeah. And then you haven't seen, did you say you haven't seen Peep Show? No, I haven't. Oh, dude, you're, I, I think you would really like it because it's, uh, it's really, really well written and, and the way they wrote it was really interesting. So it's like done point of view photography and you hear, Periodically, you hear the inner thoughts of the two main characters. Um, but what they would do is they would write it, uh, they'd film it. The two actors are also comedians, uh, Robert Mitchell and David Webb, and they would improv. So they had that level of writing. And then when they went to go record um, voiceovers for the thoughts, they would even do another pass um, after they'd even filmed it. So I did like, it's got some of my all time favorite jokes. Um, no, I've, I've actually, a lot of people have told me I should try it. Okay, good. That's um, I'd be I'd be shocked if I wasn't the first one. Um, and then Black Books as well. I think I already recommended to you because um, <clears throat> also really 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 well written, but great um, sight gags. Probably like after Triumph, my second favorite sight gags in the business. Um, but I don't I don't really know why I'm just telling giving you a list of my favorite shows. It's it's uh, kind of shitty radio, but uh, there we have it. I did want to ask, so you've been writing for Triumph since at least 2016, right? Yeah, that's when I started for the so you started show. For the big um the big election show. Yeah. 
That's awesome. Cause actually I, I've just been catching up. Like, I mean, I, I've loved, I've loved Triumph since I was a kid, but I haven't had a cable in a while. So I had to actually like dig around and like, is there, is there even a good place to go to like buy all the Triumph stuff that's out there? Not really. Right. Not that I know of. Um, I really don't know. I know Hulu has, a, has some stuff, but uh, yeah, the, I don't know of any way of actually just getting everything at once. I have no idea how to do that aside from the fact that Robert has it on his like computer. <laughs> Right, right. But I mean, I've seen stuff that he shot that never even was never even aired. Right. I bet there's some good stuff there. I was shocked to uh, to listen to the the podcast "Let's Make a Poop," which is great, and we need more episodes of it right away. But I was shocked that they got Blackwood, the Dragon Master, Black like, Wolf. Did, did Black Wolf. I'm sorry. Oh my God, he's gonna put a hex on me. But like, did someone? Did some? Did 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 like Robert's personal assistant or someone go and get that guy's number all those years ago at the Star Wars opening? And has it has that been sitting in Robert's Rolodex this whole time? Oh no, we've been working with Black Wolf consistently for years. Oh damn, Black Wolf has been involved in tons of things we've done. Wow, he was on got... the Hulu show. He, he did some hilarious stuff on the Hulu show too. It was honestly his best work was if you watch the episode of the Hulu show where we faked auditions for Trump TV. That's right. the I saw funniest. That one, yeah. That's he's in that. He's he's yeah. the guy pretending he's the guy pretending to be the uh the boss, like the director. Oh, and I didn't recognize him outside of his wizard costume, was, I guess. I think he, actually I think it was in a wizard costume. But, oh, I must have uh, watched but it yeah. Yeah, yeah, we watched the one with the Trump TV auditions, which is really I mean, some of the best, our best work ever. The things we got people to say it was un, just unimaginably good. And there's, yeah. and he just, you could see when he would start to, you know, veer from what they were doing. And you get, you see like the actual frustration that Robert has with him as he's like giving away what that this is fake. <laughs> oh my God. Like, honestly, the last week I've just been in, in prepping for this, watching a ton of Triumph and just like laughing my fucking ass off, like till all hours of the morning. I'm sure my neighbors are just like, what is this dude on? Um, like, I just think, I think it's the the best joke writing around, like pound for pound. Thank in, you. In my opinion. Yeah, no, I mean, um, he, you know, Robert puts a lot of work and time and money into having the best jokes. You know, he, he's very meticulous about who he hires and, you know, it's not that many of us that we really have to, you know, make sure that, you know, because it's, it's triumph, you know. You have a, you have a lot to live up to. Yeah, yeah, um, and I imagine he he's got to be like I I actually noticed um, I didn't realize that that David Feldman had worked on some stuff too, including the podcast. And I just I'm imagining the three of you in the writers' room, and it's it's got to just be super fun, just to be joking around and like you must just be laughing all the time. Those are like two of the funniest people alive. Yeah, I mean they're both very just incredibly funny people, and David's been working with uh, Robert consistently for many years. Mm-hmm. I'm really glad that I that I uh, found you on the on the David Feldman show. Um, do you think there's any chance I'll I'll ever get to talk to David Feldman before he joins like the Maoist guerrillas and and becomes a partisan in the hills? You know, I feel like if he does that, he's going to come back within a week. He's going <laughs> to he's going to find someone in charge there uh, st- over the line, and he's going to talk them the wrong way, and it's all going to be over. I feel like Dave if David did join a Maoist guerrilla, he would get fired within a few weeks. <laughs> I think he wants to kind of though a little bit. Um, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Is that uh, is is the David Feldman show the best uh, the best radio slash podcast uh, around under fifteen hours? Um, it's definitely my favorite one. That's over six. Nice, nice. I think of all the over six hour podcasts, it is among the best. 
But uh, there's other good podcasts out there. Definitely you should check out uh, Tom Goss's podcast, This Is Not A Show. Uh, he's the one who wrote all the hockey stuff I said earlier. Okay, okay. Uh, I, don't, I gotta check that one out. Um, yeah, okay, now... Hockey. Yeah, yeah. Now I'm debating, so, so my roommate has a dog named Joyous, who's a huge Triumph fan and actually wrote a bunch of Triumph jokes for me. But to be honest, I'm almost too terrified to even go through them now. But I think, uh, Ty Priest, are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Can you can you come in with a with a like an Ed McMahon style IO to make sure I don't I don't I don't die on the vine with with these if I do them? Um, please. Geez, I, <laughs> I suppose so. I almost think that would make. I mean, if you're going to die on the vine, you're going to die on the vine, right? Actually, it might make it better. Yeah. Um, Dave, me, what do you think? Should, should we me should we do this? Ed McMahon won't make things better. Is what I'm saying. It always makes things better, bro. Uh, the good thing about this, though, is since I edit these episodes, <laughs> if 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 it goes as as horribly as I think it may, um, I could just cut it out and I'll I'll replace it with elevator music. Um, do people come up to you with like with like triumph jokes all the time, Dave? Is that like a thing for you now? Well, no one comes up to me because no one knows that who I am or that I like the triumphs. <laughs> okay, okay, so. I'm a trendsetter in that regard. Okay, no, let's the only, see if I... The only people who approach me are uh, pretty much just women who want to meet Pete. Oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably a thing, isn't it? Um, yeah, and it's like, it's. I don't want to be mean, but it's like he doesn't want to meet someone who came <laughs> up to his friend and said, can we... You know what I mean? Like he's he he's very he's very shy about that sort of thing. So it's like I, I'm sorry, you know, it's nothing personal. Mm, mm. That's uh, that's kind of sad actually. So that that puts me in the perfect frame of mind now. My 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 depression and self loathing is now kicked in, which is my secret fuel. Okay, as long as I don't fuck up the Russian uh, slash Eastern European accent too much, this might be okay. What do you say? Let's just do this, okay? Very good. All right. Good. All right. Well, it's good to be here on uh, the Handkerchief Dynasty podcast, you know. Uh, I did notice every name associated with this podcast sounds like a book you would find in one of Jeffrey Epstein's grooming rooms. Uh, the Secret Professor is in the age 8 to 12 section. Uh, Handkerchief Dynasty is in the young male adult section next to Kevin Spacey's jizz rag. And, uh, and High Priest of Oil sounds more like a 16 to 18-year-old grooming book. You know, weed, you know, wizards, et cetera, et cetera. So way to go, guys. Way to go. You're close. You need more. You need to grind your vocal cords more. Because you, you see, it's, it's always a... Uh... Thank you. Yes, 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 yes. You're right. You're right. Yes, I know. He, I know. I know. I kid. I kid. I kid. He's going deeper. He is going deeper into his voice. Deeper back into the Eastern European shtetl. Let's go. Okay. Dave really knows how to pick them, you know? Because I think this podcast has about as much of a chance of catching on as Amy Klobuchar has of ever becoming president. We're yes, yes, take it. <laughs> you, yes, speak sh strength to power. Strength Truth to, to power. power. Truth to power. You know, I... I, I punch I, up. <laughs> oh, this is so fun. Okay. Um, you know, in preparation for this, I've been watching a lot of, uh, a lot of Conor McDavid hockey highlights, you know? Man, oh man, that goal, that goal against the, the Leafs, against Morgan Riley. I haven't seen a bitch eat dust like that since my Shih Tzu agreed to lick truffle shavings from my butthole. 
Yes, yes. We don't do as many of the real dog stuff anymore, you know, <laughs> since we had that incident with, uh, with, with Peter. We're doing our best here in these tough times. You know, I'm getting, I'm getting into it. I can't even stoop my Shih Tzu unless she's wearing an N95 mask now. Uh, unfortunately, you know, our supply was running low, but uh, thankfully, Jeff Bezos was able to divert a shipment intended for Mexico City emergency rooms. So they will, they will be here soon. Yes, um, yes. <laughs> um, you, you may you may recognize uh, the the intro song for this episode of the podcast is uh, is by YMO all the all the way from 1978. I think that's the same year you were born, uh, right, David? Dave? Yes, correct. Yes, I was yes. I was born under Jimmy Carter, uh, yes. directly, <laughs> while he squatted over a, a glass top table. <laughs> Uh, uh, you know, Dave is a big fan of YMO too, you know, uh, you know, he's telling me before the podcast, he was just saying, YMO, YMO, why am I on this shitty podcast today? I don't know. But you know, those YMO guys, they're seriously, they're seriously cool guys. You know, they're seriously fucking cool. They're so cool. They look sexy playing keyboards, which is not easy. Uh, for example, uh, when you guys play keyboards, or when you try to play keyboards, I, I, it's so gross, I always spit up my kibble, you know? And then you have to just leave the room because seriously, while I'm eating my own wet vomit, there is no way I'll be able to do it if there is anything as disgusting as you two playing keyboards in front of me. No way, no way. So usually I just turn on the you playing keyboards when I need to throw up some grass to make room. Yes, yes, perfect, perfect, perfect. <laughs> um, you know, and then it's interesting name for this song, Tongpu, Tongpu, it says, Maybe a good, but I think it's a, similar to what I think your podcast should be named, which is tongue poo, you know, because you guys can make poop out of both, both your mouth and your butt. Um, but seriously, though, seriously, though, I'm doing this really hacky triumph impression because I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Robert Smigel and his work. You know, it's uh, it's he's one of only a handful of uh, of Jewish performers on television who's not trying to pass for Italian, which is good to see. You know, and I love yes, to see really stick at the dice. <laughs> and I, I just love to see, you know, I love to see a, a Jewish performer on, on national TV finally, finally getting seen by, by a wide audience, you know, as he, as he cowers behind the couch creepily, you know, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. Yes, uh, you, can, you can usually see Robert uh, behind the chair or the couch as the dog puppet is waving around. It, he, it, he got it after years of practice, uh, hiding behind furniture. When, when other people were in the room so he could jump out and say, surprise. And the surprise, of course, was that his cock was out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if I was really uh, Robert, I would say, I have one more, I have one more, but these, these are the ones that float to the top. Um, I'm not, I'm not going to do any of the other ones right now. But uh, seriously, uh, Robert and, and, and you and all, all, this, all you guys doing all these things for us, we really appreciate it up in Canada because you know we can we can relax a little bit more and just appreciate the comedy itself rather than Thank the you. being mixed with the terror setting in. Um, let's see here. I wanted to. Well, that went way better than I thought it would. Um, but uh, it's so Me fun too. to do that voice too. Went, went so so fun to do the voice. <sighs> um, 
Let's see here. I'm looking at any questions. I just want to make sure I hit something just in case I'm missing anything. Is there anything you wanted to ask? Uh, oh, did we lose Dave? I'm here. I think oh. we're asking him if he has any questions for me. Oh, sorry. No, he was, oh. ask, he was asking you if you have any questions for us. Yeah, it's, like an it's like a job God's interview. Name we're could we're that turning be the possible. table. It's true. It's true. Okay. I have a question. Um, is there, <laughs> are there still Oilers? In Edmonton, are there still people? Well, they reopened training camp on Monday, so yeah. Um, no, I all... mean, like, are there still people who work in oil? <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think the what is it? The high priest. The refining is done. A lot of refining is done in Edmonton, and the drilling is done. Like, or the oil sands? Yeah. Yeah, they they uh, refine the oil here, but I don't know if those people are called oilers. Well, then guess, your name is a lie. Yeah, I guess I've never really understood. Like, I've never heard anyone say, uh, like, I've never asked anyone, what do you do for a living? And they'd say, I'm an oiler. Because, I mean, and all then, teams are supposed to be the jobs of the area, right? Right. Flyers, sharks, Steelers. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Steelers, so, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't really know. I don't know why that's a name. I do know that growing up, the Houston Oilers, you know, they were also called the Oilers. And that was like um, mystifying to me that there could be two. And they seemed much more oil centric to me at the time. Like it kind of made sense. They had a picture of a oil derrick on their football helmets. I don't know. I've never met anyone here who says that they're an oiler. So I guess it's just like what you call people who work in the oil industry. Maybe if you have to name a hockey team after that, like there's no other way to establish the oil connection that they could come up with besides oiler is my guess. Mm. All right. Well, I guess, yeah. I, mean, I guess they just wanted to instill, instill pride, I guess, in the local jobs and their, their love of the local oil. They definitely undid a lot of that. There was a horrible montage the last time we went on a great Stanley Cup run where we were down two games to nothing against the Carolina Hurricanes and they just went to an oil rig and like filmed all these all these oil rig workers being like, All right, oilers, it's time to dig deep. And I think I think everyone just could yeah. I think any any benefit to the to the oil and gas industry was was shattered that day back in 06. I do have an important hockey question in general. Here we though, go. Which is uh why did they have a commercial of a penguin with a Stanley Cup on a plane and then never follow up what happened to him? Like an actual penguin? There was a commercial that was on a bunch of sports events of a penguin singing Doobie Doobie Doo with the Stanley Cup that he had stolen on a plane and then it was so stupid they abandoned the commercial campaign, which means in the canon of that fictional universe, the penguin still has the cup. Huh. I don't remember what product it was. Um, yeah, I've never seen that commercial. So he, it was a penguin, like a literal penguin. Yes. On a plane with the Stanley Cup. He stole the cup. Singing that, that song that's the only song. That's pretty much the only song penguins know how to sing, right? That, I guess. Uh, you would figure yeah. you'd figure that that would be bigger news. I mean, in the states, if like a major sports trophy was lost, but I mean, in Canada, you know, elk and beavers and, and moose are just running off with shit all the time. So 
it's just another another Wednesday. Now, is it true that the mayor of Edmonton, not the current mayor, but the former mayor, uh, stopped being mayor the day that he was uh, used to make a coat? You're the old you, mayor. <laughs> I just I feel, am I wrong that you've had multiple yeah. beavers as mayor? Yeah, that was Lord. That was Lord Mayor Beaverton. Yeah, yeah. Also, there's a newspaper named after him. He's 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 well. He's very well regarded. Yeah. It was actually a hat. Was Not it a hat? Really. Yeah, it was a hat. Hats are like really exactly Really uh, prized. You can you trade a hat, you can get a lot back if you trade a hat. So it was like uh, he kind of botched our fireworks display on the first, and then we were thinking like, well, we need some stuff. Which of our city officials can we make into a hat that'll get us the most return? And the mayor was kind of the most high-profile guy, so yeah, we made him into a hat. Because I feel like I remember that that your mayor was highly prized for the oiliness of his coat. Oh yeah, the oiliness of his coat, and he had made great gloves, anal glands, like huge anal glands that you can squeeze, (laughs) and that's where you get strawberry flavor from. And he had big ones, big (laughs) ones. So we made him into a hat and squeezed the glands and. We got a bunch of money back from the Kool-Aid people. I don't know what, where the hat went, but we did get a bunch of money back from the Kool-Aid. We got to get that hat. Fuck. I don't know. I think yeah. it it went to like a European nobleman. Um, have you have you spent much time like outside of I'm, I'm assuming Toronto, Montreal, and Canada, Dave? We got we got a dog sled uh, that we could we could book you on. Um, no, I haven't really spent much time uh, in Canada, uh, just because you know I I just I don't like ethnic foods. I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't, I, you know, I only speak English. I I don't want to be in a a dangerous situation. And, and, you know, I feel like, you know, I feel like I I don't want to go to French Canada because I've been a multiple web, I've been a multiple like podcasts where whenever they talk about how to solve Israel and Palestine, I have ideas, but they always end with a French Canadian genocide. (laughs) Yeah, they don't like that. They don't like that. Yeah, we love we love our like, French Canadians. Actually, I actually noticed we had our first. I think we have our first lister in Montreal, which makes a total of six. Um, and we're also did I mention we're big in Germany? Yeah, I did mention we're big in Germany. I've recorded in Denmark. Okay, um, nice. Listen, I I honestly would love to keep you on mic all day and all night, um, but uh, I'm sure you have other places to go. And and honestly, I've run out of interesting things to say. Um, Good. Because well, I'm probably you guys. I'm probably just gonna I'm probably just gonna yeah. Start talking about, you know, my lunch plans and, and the chores I have to do any minute here. Yeah, no, thank you. It's uh, I really appreciate you coming on. Just you know, I, I would recommend maybe not not um, not agreeing to come on every podcast that asks you on Twitter because you know most of them are not going to be as as nice as us. Um, but uh, super super good well, of you to do so. I've said yes to all of them so far, but now that's going to change. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. Most of our most of our guests immediately. After finishing the interview, well, you know, get a restraining order, type thing. So, so no, no hard feelings on that front. Um, yeah, I've been a really big fan of your work for for a long time. I think you're a really talented, really insightful guy, and uh, it was great to uh, to chat about comedy and, and the movie, and and uh, and really looking forward to the next one. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate yeah. it.